Hi, and welcome to the Dewing Grain podcast. Each week, we bring you the Dewing Grain market report, giving you up-to-date information and insider advice, followed by Farm Chat, where we catch up on agricultural issues while sampling a beer, Andrew's favourite bit. So let's start with Andrew Dewing and this week's market report. Welcome to the market report. What follows is my thoughts or gut instincts of what the market is going to do. It is not an instruction to trade. Any decisions to trade is yours. Market report for week commencing 16th of March 2020. Norfolk is the only county without a confirmed coronavirus person, which is uh, very reassuring. Obviously no one comes to visit Norfolk. Uh, slightly worrying times, as everybody knows, and we're all trying to make the right decisions about what to do next. So as a, as a business, we've tried to put in place our plans, same as everybody else's. Goodness knows whether they're going to work or not, and goodness knows who's actually going to catch the virus. Anyway, hopefully it will be a nice mild experience and pass over quickly. The effects of that have been immense. The market on stocks, as everybody knows, has collapsed. Um, The impact on cereal prices around the world and commodity prices in general has been pretty profound. Uh, We've been saved from the the bulk of that in our cereal prices because the pound has weakened uh, significantly. Now, that's not not a coronavirus weakness of the pound. It is every country has the same problem at the same time. Um, It is obviously to do with our stance as as a country negotiating Brexit at the moment. So the difference in 118 to the euro and 112.5 where we are at the point of recording is about £8.20 a tonne that it's stopped from dropping. So every other country's had a a significant drop in cereal prices. We've had a drop but not a significant one. If the pound recovers then obviously that will have the reverse effect. And this morning, this is recorded on the Friday, the market is looking like it's going to start sort of unchanged to slightly better but the stock markets look pretty vulnerable again so we shall see with that in mind predicting grain prices is quite a lot of the time precarious but at at this precise moment this is an experience that that no one's actually had before so I would suggest the biggest shock has come in all seed rape um, which is, you know, our advice on that has been to, to hold it, or the, the, we believe certainly on new crop there's life in it. Old crop, we've been saying, look, get it done. Um, well, the market on old crop has, has come to sub 300. So 298x uh, is the value first thing this morning. There was an 11 euro drop yesterday in oil prices. Oil values around the world are obviously plummeting due to. Um, lack of industry, lack of people travelling and aeroplanes not flying which um, is great for the environment but uh, not so sharp for oil prices. The impact on new crop has dropped that to 300 for harvest delivery. There is a problem with the crop as you know. Uh, The fields are looking slightly more covered because the plants are growing enough to cover the bare patches but there is an issue with a lack of supply of oilseed rape for next season, so that's a long-winded battle, that one. And I probably I don't feel inclined to sell new crop oilseed rape, but that's with the lack of understanding of what happened next with the, with the population of the planet and oil consumption. Moving on to grain prices, feed barley's easing back, 124x for April. 
Uh, there are there's still a boat or two that hasn't quite got filled. Once they're gone, I do not see that price going up. I've I've repeat the same mantra: if you have feed barley to trade, then get it out of your hair. Don't make yourself too busy doing spring work. Just say right, I will sell it. Sell it for a month when you're not going to be busy, perhaps. But just you know, actually. It doesn't take that much thinking to, to, to go, do you know what, he's probably right, that bloke, I'll sell my feed barley. So pick up the phone and get on with it. Feed wheat, well, there's, there's the support. That market is refusing to lie down. Farmers are not engaging on old crop trading, so March wheat is being bid up as people try to get cover against the sales they've got. Farmers in this county are going to be working next week full out and I think that that will limit the amount of selling from a from a physical perspective you can't have the loading shovel in the same place as the seed drill is working in the field so the practicalities of not being able to load will come to haunt tail end of March as it always does so X farm feed wheat for March 144 and the price goes up one pound per month from then onwards uh, we would pay for July at this point of recording, which obviously will be useless to you on Monday morning, 150x for July. But hey, there could be some really exciting, dramatic movements in the market in the next uh, day or so. So with that kind of somber, kind of um, lost, no, not really knowing what to do, I would just say, as I end this report, that my underlying feeling is on cereal prices that they will continue to fall with, one, the coronavirus just kind of knocking the stuffing out of every market, and two, the sentiment, now that the weather is drying up, and I'm sorry if you're still underwater in Lincolnshire or somewhere, but now that it's drying up and, and, and fertilizers going on and jobs are getting done and the crops are beginning to look green again, I think the sentiment aspect of that is going to bring the prices down a bit. So subject to the pound also not cacking out even further in the next week or two, I do think it's going to drift backwards. We shall see. Thank you for listening. Please remember that any decision to trade on this opinion is yours. Wealth management company Bruin Dolphin has been helping families for many years to accumulate, grow and protect their money to cope with a changing financial climate. Their services range from bespoke investment solutions to retirement planning and tax-efficient investing across their 32 offices. In East Anglia, they have offices in Norwich, Ipswich and Cambridge. If you would like to know more, call Aidan Watts on 01603 733 300. Or look online for Bruin Dolphin. Capital at risk. Tax treatment depends on individual circumstances and can change. Bruin Dolphin is authorised and regulated by the FCA. And now it's time for Farm Chat. This morning I have got with me Lottie Hill from Brown & Co. Good morning, Lottie. Morning. And I've got Ben, as usual, to ask intelligent questions. Morning. Still intelligent. Looking forward to one of them. Right, Lottie, talk us through what you do. So I am based at Brown & Co in the Norwich office and I basically do all things agri-environmental. So specialising in agri-environmental schemes, whether that's for old ELS HLS, so environmental um, entry-level stewardship and high-level stewardship, and the new countryside stewardship schemes as well. Okay. 
And that's obviously going to be the hottest topic of the next five years, isn't it? Yep, it's a good career choice. (laughs) (laughs) When a farmer walks in and he says, right, what what do I do next, Brian and Co? Mm -hmm. Do they just say, right, Lottie, off you go? Um, I think it's, so we kind of take the approach with them and company to kind of do a whole business approach. So not only do we do the kind of the BPS, the CFAs with them, we also manage the environmental schemes. So lately, environmental stewardship and countryside stewardship is becoming more essential for kind of a guaranteed income especially mm-hmm. with the BPS transition period that's going to come up. We all know that BPS is decreasing, and the first year of that will be 2021. But I've got to say that, you know, obviously all of these acronyms we've got to... Um, spell out. Well, no, you know, there's, uh, most, most of our, our farmers know exactly what they are, but yep. if you, to any listener, there's, there's, this, is, this is all about um, the government's policy of how they distribute money and what farmers need to do to do that so if they have no trees no hedges no nothing that they do they don't get any money Uh, hls is higher level stewardship so the old um els hls were schemes that started from 2008 was the first year up until 2014 yeah and they run five and ten years respectively and it's had a marked effect on on agriculture in the sense there is more diversity on farms there is more awareness of what people should be doing to do environmental things Mm. correctly and importantly they were under eu funding Um, so we're gonna have the change on the way that things are funded over the next two three years as well okay so going moving from eu law to uk domestic law Mm. um which will be a benefit for the farming community there should be slightly more flexibility Okay. in anything that's coming. Okay, I'm, I'm going to go straight into one of your subjects. Yep. I know Ben's got some questions, but the, it's the carbon trading. Carbon, yep. Um, so the government uh, produced a 25-year environment plan back in 2017 mm-hmm. and had a number of objectives identified within that. And one of those was um, basically planting more trees, climate change mitigation, that sort of thing. And one of the uh, ways that they're looking at meeting one of these objectives is through the Woodland Carbon Guarantee. Mm-hmm. And the Woodland Carbon Guarantee is... Uh, so the Wooden Carbon Guarantee is a scheme uh, based for 35 years in which landowners will plant trees on their land. Yep. Um, they will fill out a kind of calculator to work out how much carbon that's going to sequate over a 35-year period. Does that depend on variety of tree? Yep, so natives or broad leaves will tend to uh, sequate less carbon than your conifers. So, bit of a shame, that. Yeah, <laughs> it is. I've put in a tree. Is that yep. a tenner? Is, is it as so simple as So what's that? really interesting with the uh, Woodland Carbon Guarantee is the government have introduced a reverse auction to determine the price of carbon. Right. So at the moment, the UK kind of carbon market, you're looking at about £15 a tonne. Mm-hmm. With the latest um, auction that was held back in January, mm. um, some of the applications we put in got between £25 to £30 a tonne. Okay, this is the, the Brown & Co auction? Yeah, so these are some of the clients we acted for. Okay, so, and this is, this is an airline company that is saying, right, I want to neutralise my carbon, I'm yeah, going so to buy carbon credits by... These are all registered on the Woodland Carbon Guarantee Scheme, so okay. we basically go, look, we've got this contract to sell four hectares of woodland, um, over 35 years it will sequest X amount of carbon, uh, people that are looking to offset 
um, will then sign into that and then basically sign up a contract and buy that. Does that, I mean, to, to you, is that, should we not just be having the carbon and then not allow firms to do that? It's got to be funded by these firms paying that money to, to justify their exploitation of the planet, if you like. You know, it's, it's, are we really addressing the issue by allowing someone to buy off their bad behaviour? Yeah, so this is an opinion of yours as opposed to Branica's. I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm just... I, so, so this wooden carbon guarantee is a combination of two things. It's A, letting corporates try and offset their carbon, but also B, the UK government incentivizing tree planting. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of making two objectives there. Is, is, is the best carbon sink yeah. trees? Yeah. yeah, I think that's Andrew's made a good point there. Yeah. Is a non-native conifer planted in a plot of land that won't attract UK natural wildlife potentially. Mm. I think an oak tree has huge huge amounts of wildlife but won't do the carbon, will it? You're saying that a conifer will absorb lots of carbon very quickly. I think it depends on the growth rate of the trees as well. So conifers tend to grow a lot quicker than your deciduous native um, trees. And because this is only looking at a scheme for a 35-year period, because you're more likely to have greater growth that tree can sequate more carbon over that period mm. as a short term if we're talking 35 years a short term objective that would be a better one to plant um there is nothing stopping anyone deciding that they want to plant a whole load of non-native conifer trees um in order for the quickest return um that is something that the government doesn't look like they have addressed but the majority of the applications that we've done has been more so uh, landowners wanting to plant an area of woodland right. aesthetically, leaving legacy on their land, and they have tended to choose the native breeds um, and broadleaves. Okay, no, I mean it's, it's it's interesting, and this government policy has all been finalised. I mean, this is all set in stone, or you know, do you think there might be other changes down the line? It has been finalised, so I think the contracts are being signed shortly. And there'll be another reverse auction in June, so this is something that they're planning to continue. Okay. Um, the reverse auctions, I, I don't think I said this before, is really kind of determining the minimum amount that you'll get for carbon. So as time passes, I think there's going to be a real increase in interest and the price of carbon and sequating that is going to go up. Is, I mean, one of my fears is that the the farmer has a potential here doesn't mm-hmm. he he's got he's got the land and therefore he's got the opportunity to be paid for doing something that's useful to the environment that the general public might like them for and it's their asset and if they they're going to be subdivided by a number of firms you know you included yep. everyone's going to say oh we've got the best carbon auction and it's going to get the slice of the pie is going to get kind of fragmented are they going to undersell themselves is my point i think when we have someone that comes and approaches us and says look i've got this area of land what's the best thing to do with it yeah lately majority of devices unless they're really desperate to plant trees and want to go there i think a country stewardship scheme is a better way of having uh, income and a return yeah. and in some cases keeps your land use code as arable so it keeps the flexibility going up doesn't devalue the land as much that's kind of advice that i've gone for in that respect if you had a field that you said right i'm going to grow some christmas trees on mm-hmm. is there a scheme you could put that field into christmas trees for 10 years and come out and benefit is there a 
it, look, it's 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 carbon sink in the sense that it's trees, it's gone yeah. for trees. Let's grow some of so, them. So, no, because Christmas trees technically will be described as a kind of a permanent crop as opposed to trees which are kind of bare and registered in terms of um, when you log and register everything of the government everything has to be a, given a code for types of land right so this becomes um, forestry so it as becomes woodland arable. as opposed to and then you, you can you change back from woodland to arable without trying so if you want to do that you'd have to complete an environmental impact assessment because you so are changing the land use 35 type. years from now if you convert arable to woodland which devalues the land yep and you then say right i've done that I want to go back to farming again because cereal prices have gone through the roof because we can't import because no one will sell us anything. Yep. You can't do it because the government will say, sorry, mate, too much impact. It will be a a difficult situation. It depends on the area of woodland, where it is, um, the biodiversity. Why on earth would any farmer convert his arable land worth more into something that's worth less? and be tied to 35 years worth of doing that it doesn't to me this is news obviously i'm not studying this subject but commercially that's just moronic i think again it depends if you wanted to plant the wood in the first place and the areas of wood we're talking about that have gone in so far are small areas it's two three hectares it's not putting a 10 hectare good arable field down and we would never advise to do that Mm. um it's looking at your marginal areas and you go okay and especially with the reverse auction, you have a chance to depict how much money you want to return. So you kind of work it back as in, OK, I want £200 a hectare a year. You work that out and then you go back and work on your price, put in reverse auction and go from there. OK, yeah, so that's a grower saying, yeah, it's going to cost me whatever. This is what I think the carbon per tonne's worth. And then someone can bid on it. Yeah. Yeah, OK. I mean, it's um, I kind of agree with Andrew. It's a funny policy. It is. Um, I can see how, yeah, up in the highlands or whatever, it might well tick a lot of boxes. Mm-hmm. But down when you come into the good arable land or whatever, yeah. yeah. Because also after 35 years, if you say, right, I am going to change that land, you know, ripping up trees is not going to be cheap. No. Uh, and the difficulty that you've got as well is at the moment under felling license conditions if you do fell the trees you're obliged to plant the same area again elsewhere okay okay so that's why you'd have to properly complete an environmental impact assessment and it, it gets a bit more tricky okay yeah, i mean it, it's a complicated policy and obviously you're the expert so that's good i mean is is there anything coming down the line that you think farmers should be aware of in terms of environmental schemes anything uh, new so uh, kind of the main updates is, as I previously mentioned, your basic payment scheme, BPS, is going to be transitioning out. Mm. Uh, so the last year, that will be 2028. Um, we've all heard the phrase public money for public goods being banded around a lot. And this is happening in the form of environmental land management scheme, ELMS for short. So this is kind of the new government um, kind of environmental stewardship scheme. They've definitely said it's not going to be a kind of replacement for BPS and it would be likely to start in autumn, winter of 2024 and will be up and running in 2025. Uh, The government published a document two weeks ago which kind of did an overview of what they're looking at right now. They've got a number of um, different testing and trial plots um, that are being done all over the country 
to try and create something that is a little bit more farmer friendly and works on the ground. Can I just interject? Is it around yep. the same time that that government uh, advisor, that's a mayor Cummings, made his statement about farmers not being uh, worth keeping? You know, we can import yep. all our food. Yeah, well, that was it, uh, one of his advisors. There's one of his advisors, yeah. and the government's denied any, but he happens to be a key advisor who goes to number 10 regularly and has opinions on agricultural issues. Yeah. Which that is absolutely terrifying. It is, and it's unfortunately, in some ways, the farming community must have a battle to make their voices heard. Um, what I would say with one thing that I listened to as a conference with Natural England the other week, and they really kind of put the point down that with whatever new scheme is coming, so the environmental land management scheme, farmers need to engage with it, and in the first one to two years of it appearing, to really show. Um, what it's worth monetary and to keep that pot of funding in the farming community. If people don't engage with it, that pot of funding is going to go elsewhere. So you've mentioned the environmental land management schemes. How do you see that looking in the future? Um, so at the moment, kind of the majority of information that's been released is quite vague. What we do know is there are going to be three tiers mm-hmm. of it. So the first tier is going to be quite similar to the countryside stewardship that you've got already now. It's going to be looking at um, conserving what you've already got on land, um, farming environmentally, sustainably, that sort of thing. Um, The second tier is going to be known as environmental enhancement. So we're looking at improving the conditions of the land, um, maybe planting more areas uh, that are environmentally friendly. And the third one is going to be a landscape-scale approach. So this is more likely to be your uh, peatland restoration, salt marsh um, reclamation, um, proper landscale changes, which ideally are going to be taking land out of uh, farming production that's not going to go back in again. So these tiers are meant to be interchangeable. um, So once you're in one, you're not going to be stuck I imagine the higher payments are going to be for this landscape scale approach. But you have got to bear in mind that once you go down that route, you're potentially for that area of land coming out of farming. Okay. I mean, yeah, you know, you as Brown and Co and Savills and, you know, you're all sort of powerful organisations mm-hmm. who, who who can go and talk to the government, can't yeah, you? So, yeah, exactly. So we've recently, um, so I mentioned about the um, ELMS testing and trials pilots. Yeah. Um, we've put one forward ourselves and have got it accepted. Um, so this is a chance for us to kind of gather the views of the farming community and feed it directly into DEFRA for the new environmental management scheme. And we're focusing on carbon sequestration on farm and kind of going out um, to people and going, look, what can you physically do on farm to, okay. with your soil health, whether that's uh, reducing um, the energy from farm buildings, that sort of thing, and trying to get real opinions as opposed to, I think, DEFRA rely a lot on the RSPB and the National Trust for filling a lot of their stakeholders for landowners because... They own a lot of large percentage of land, but they don't actually reflect the majority of the views in the farming community. Yeah, they're not always farming that land. I mean, and that's no. that's another interesting thing, isn't it? I, I'm thinking recently, we haven't heard anything from the DEFRA minister at all. No, seeing he's been appointed and everyone was quite glad when George Eustace was put forward, it was oh, not heard anything since. Yeah, yeah. 
and um, I don't know, it's just very, very quiet in the run-up to this budget, mm. um, which I think is in a couple of weeks' time. Yeah. Uh, you know, what is agriculture going to get? So, okay. But you as Brown & Co, you know, are, are actively engaging with DEFRA to try yeah. and manage these environmental expectations. Yeah, and to kind of put a scheme together that works. Mm. I mean, we have over 200... 250 clients that I work with on environmental management schemes and um, whether it was ELS, HLS or CSS so I know the, the, the footfalls and what doesn't work so if we can get something that actually works then I see that as a benefit and almost a responsibility of myself to improve things. There's a two kind of pronged attack here there is your efforts of environmental schemes, uh, carbon sinks and, mm. and you know whatever carbon is absorbed but there's also a, a need for greater technological adoption in agriculture mm-hmm. so tractors becoming more efficient less runs over the land you know there's, there's all of this that has to be added on and that's that needs to attract investment as well doesn't it yeah helping farmers with existing machinery and whatever they're doing to get greener I mean that that would also make a lot of sense wouldn't it yeah and so, again, I think that's something they're going to be addressing in the um, new environmental land management scheme and the different grants that have been available, such as the Rural Development Fund grants and leader grants. There has been some funding to fund kind of mint-till um, more efficient machinery. Mm. That has run out at the moment, but it's something that in the document that the government produced last week did identify there'll be more kind of grants and revenue streams to improve kind of the efficiency on farm. Do you think there'll be a blueprint for production of crops to meet environmental, a green standard? And bearing in mind that that Sainsbury's, Tesco's, all of the supermarkets are going to have a carbon commitment that says zero and therefore all of the products that go into them Mm. is going to have to tick some boxes and if a farmer it can be rewarded for a certain piece of behavior that balances out what you're doing on your own farm so therefore your product is good enough to go mm-hmm. into a product that ends up in the supermarket there's there's a there's a value in that for the food product so if they if they sell all of their carbon credits mm-hmm. out to an airline company their own product if they had a few carbon credits added to it, mm-hmm. that would increase the value of their own product. In other words, if they sell themselves early, they might miss out on something that the, the food chain is going to have to do to meet their carbon commitment. So I think that's kind of identifying the difference between the way that uh, corporate and the commercial sector is going to be in terms of legislations yeah. and what they require and the government. And they are going to be two separate things. Yeah. So it's working out which one you kind of want to align yourself with. Well, we, we have to be aligned to the farming community because our, our livelihood depends upon farmers producing cereals. Yeah. And we need our cereals to be understood to be mm-hmm. um, if they are greener than importing couscous or yeah. importing, uh, you know, black sea... Uh, wheat with uh, all sorts of agrochemicals on that we're not allowed to use, all yeah. of those things. If we're perceived to be green, we need to know that that needs to be valued mm-hmm. by the food chain, doesn't it? And yeah, it does. And it isn't going to happen immediately, is it? It's going to take some time to, to get that actually appreciated. And I think it also depends whether the kind of the corporations like Tesco's or Sainsbury's can see if they can make a profit off 
the, the consumer deciding that oh, I'm going to pay a little bit more because I know that that um, item has kind of been a carbon neutrally farmed, but whether actually people will well, is something completely different. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. I mean, I think we're coming back and our, a, a debate we have day in day out in our office is this is this level playing field. Yeah. And if you're importing a product from the US from the Black Sea. You know their standards are going, are radically different to ours, and I'm I'm going to say they're not going to be as carbon efficient as ours. No. And I think this is going to be a fight with the supermarkets to say, you know, actually, if you're going to stack the shelves with lots of cheap food from all over the world that hasn't had its carbon footprint neutralised, mm-hmm. and yet we're asking the British farmer to do this, I mean. Yeah, there, there needs to be a really good look at this. Yeah, definitely. And unfortunately, so the British farming community always take an interest in what they're buying and kind of the regionality and locality of it. Only a small percentage of kind of the generic UK population do do that. Other people just care about price points. No, but this, this, this really boils down to government. This is, if, if you are not going to do a true assessment of a crop's green credentials mm-hmm. as, a, you know, as a statement, we're going to be carbon neutral, um, and by the way, we're going to take a whole load of grain from a, from a place that is short of water, pumping it out of the ground. People yeah. are going short of water because they can produce a crop cheap enough to sell it to the UK. All of the environmental impact of that country's behaviour yeah. is, a, is a seriously terrible environmental moment. Yeah. And this, the, if, if the idiot boy from the government saying, oh, well, we might as well get rid of farmers because he can get it cheaper elsewhere, he's doing that He has purely. to take a responsibility for the it, yeah, effect G- that's G- going to happen He's doing that on GDP only. He's mm-hmm. purely saying, that's, this is the cost of it. He's ignoring all of the environmental impact of shipping it from... 13,000 miles away and how they grow it yeah and that is completely mindless thoughtless central London thinking yes (laughs) I think in address to that it's locality is going to be a really important thing going forward so ideally if we take the UK as a whole area where are you going to farm you're going to farm the grade one arable land majority of East Anglia is going to be farmed because it's the better land you can get inputs from it easily don't bother farming the uplands areas but there'll be an outcry from the local public that live in East Anglia because they don't see as much wildlife or things because they need to grow the food in that area if they were desperate to see things would they go further away to see kind of in your upland areas where you can sustain the environment Uh, we're definitely going to be farming I mean my my final point I think is Andrew hit the nail on the head what the government has to understand is, and I'm going to use my degree here, Andrew, externalities. So these are th- this is where you're taking the whole cost. And this is, okay, I'm going to pump water out of the Gobi Desert to grow wheat and it's mm-hmm. cheaper and I'll send it. And I think there has to be an understanding within government and at the supermarket level that you can't just make a nod to these policies that you're specialising in, Lottie, but then not take them seriously and then just let imported food come in. I accept people need access to fair-priced food. I accept that. But, yeah, there has to be some real thought about this. Anyway, I think we are finally going to have a beer. Lottie, you okay for having a a quick tester? So Andrew's going to open the beer, which he's very skilled at. Now, we have got Brewdog Clockwork Tangerine and I'm looking forward to this one. It's a citrus beer, um, 4.5%. Uh, 
Uh, and it's suitable for vegans, Andrew. Cheers. Cheers. I like it. It's quite hoppy. It's got a bit of bite to it. I, I don't I mind don't, I'm not getting the citrus, though. No. I mean, to sell something on the tangerine citrus element and not to have identify any citrus. I'm looking for the tangerine. I will admit to that. I mean, it's kind of... It's, it's got... It isn't a classic just hoppy beer, is it? It's definitely got that acidic sort of... Mm. Is that the right phrase? Aftertaste. But tangerine? Tangerine-ish coloured. I think that's yeah. the only thing it's got for tangerine. Yeah. Brewdog do some fabulous beers. This isn't my favourite Brewdog beer, but it's fine, isn't it? Okay, so we forced you to drink beer, Lottie. Yep. And we've we've absolutely cornered only one part of your extensive job, and we've run out of time. <laughs> yeah. So I apologise for that. I no, it's all right. You've enjoyed the experience. Very much so, yeah. And, um, you know, so what's your plan now? Go back to the office and have a Brown & Co long lunch? No, the, the, the plan is I am going out on farm and walking around and GPS measuring some plots. Oh, wow, that's right. Nice day for it. Yeah, absolutely. One of the Lovely. Come on, just, that, was, that was an incredibly cruel comment, Andrew. <laughs> I've had lots of experience with consultants over the years, Lottie. Anyway, no, thank you very, very much for coming in. And, um, yeah, I hope uh, if you have any further thoughts or, or, or directions that you think grain traders should take yep. in leading this, we'll, we'll gladly do our bit. But we're struggling to understand what the hell's going on from where we sit. <laughs> So, no, I'm happy to do, uh, I can always do an environmental policy update every now and then if that would be interesting for you yeah, guys. Yeah, okay, you booked. Right. Sorted. Thanks, Lottie. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to get new episodes as they're released. Dew and Grain are independent and local grain traders. From seed supply to harvest movement and storage contracts, we can supply you with the best strategies to help you achieve the highest prices for your harvest. Call now on 01263 731 550 or email info at dewinggrain.co.uk or follow us on Twitter. We are at dewinggrain. The Dewing Grain podcast is produced by Tinshed Productions in conjunction with East Coast Design Studio. 